I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Make no mistake, the data in the United States show that small businesses are hurting in today's pandemic-stricken economy. Nearly 90% of small businesses report the pandemic having a moderate to severe impact on their operations, and a little over half of small business decision makers have reported concerns about their own job security. All the while, many of the institutions that finance small businesses have been sent reeling as well, especially those fintech lenders that had built niches servicing some of the smallest firms prior to the onset of the pandemic. Indeed, a wave of innovative lenders have been absorbed by other larger financial institutions and fintechs as their loans to startups floundered. But Funbox, the San Francisco-based fintech, has been a glaring anomaly in a world of economic disruption. Like others, it suffered delinquent payments from borrowers, but only in levels that reached the high single digits all on the back of nearly $100 million invested into its big data stack. And even more remarkably, it's been able to avoid the worst of the economic repercussions of the pandemic while deploying technology that allows small business owners to take out loans without even having to provide their credit score. So I wanted to learn more about the company and the state of fintech lending and ask Prashant Fuloria, Fundbox's CEO to stop by the show and share his insights. Prashant is a longtime tech exec, startup investor, advisor, and Stanford University lecturer. And we're delighted to have his insights from the front lines of fintech. That's where I Prashant, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Chris, thank you so much for having me. So um, maybe we can just sort of start with the lay of the land. Um, When you look out, what is the state of fintech, and in particular, the health of fintech lenders? You know, really a critical piece of the financing for small businesses. How are they? How healthy are they? And what are you saying? Well, COVID has definitely impacted the fintech landscape more broadly. And it's impacted folks that provide credit, whether to consumers or small businesses. When it comes to folks that serve the small business landscape, we've seen a lot of churn over the last six months. This has proven to be both a massive challenge and a big opportunity. Um, On the challenge side, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, the small business sector is hurting. And uh, that has also translated into challenges for all companies, including fintechs that serve the small business sector. We've seen credit providers suffer from increasing delinquencies, a delinquency being the percentage of payments you were expecting that you did not get at any point in time. And those delinquencies, in some cases, have gone from single digits to double digits, maybe as high as 30, 40, 50 percent. And when that happens to a credit provider, that causes all sorts of business and operational challenges. Most credit providers are 
originating loans with other people's money, so with credit from other facilities. And there are very strict contracts with covenants in them around what happens when those covenants are are breached. And so a typical failure pattern that we've seen uh, in some of the players in the industry is delinquencies rise, covenants and contracts get breached or tripped, and uh, the credit facility providers pull back the facility. And as a result, the fintech in question can no longer originate funds and basically pauses their business operations. Uh, We've seen this pattern happen over and over and over again. So it's a challenge. It's a very real challenge. At the same time, you know, when it comes to fintech, there are also opportunities. Uh, COVID has been just an accelerant for all the, the move to digital that we've been talking about for a long time. When I get a check in the mail today, I'm no longer happy. I'm concerned about getting corona. So just digital payments, for example, or digital banking, or even getting access to credit completely digitally is just something that is here to stay and COVID accelerated it. The other opportunity that we are seeing is the, 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 the need to act quickly and be flexible with the government stimulus program, PPP, it became very clear that there was an opportunity for people to put together a service that could deliver PPP to small businesses quickly. And a number of fintechs, including Fundbox, were able to do so uh, and and help the customers. Can I just jump in there? The PPP program represented a moment where you saw a number of fintech lenders able to really um, come into the fray and provide financial assistance due to a number of competitive advantages they had vis-a-vis many legacy firms, particularly their ability to onboard new clients quickly and efficiently. Nonetheless, looking back, we see many of those firms still ultimately ended up being absorbed by larger financial institutions. Um, why do you think that was? And and did the PPP program end up being um, a boon for fintech? Or was it just a temporary life raft of the same variety that we usually associate uh, it being for small business uh, borrowers? I think the PPP program temporarily held a number of fintechs. However, a one-time stimulus is not a permanent solution for anything. And in the case of fintechs, you do have to go one level behind the headlines to see how they were actually operating. So a number of fintechs decided to act as agents or affiliates, which means that they were acquiring customers and then passing them on to a bank to service. And the PPP program had this had this uh, this uh, structure where you could act as an affiliate and earn a small commission. Fundbox, on the other hand, did the vast majority of sort of our work by acting as an originator, so working directly with the SBA and the Fed to originate funds. It was a deeper relationship with our customers and also just more work because you now have to not only acquire the customer, but also do all the processing yourself. So even even in the realm of fintechs, engaging with PPP, there were two different layers of engagement. One sort of a lighter, more superficial layer, which was simply around getting traffic and passing it on to a bank that did all the work versus actually serving the customer. And that's where things like making sure that you have the 
AML and KYC infrastructure, making sure that there is no fraud or duplicates and so on became really, really important. And uh, we chose to go down that path because one, because we could. And so that was, we, we had the technology, but it was also a better customer experience because we could manage the whole thing end to end. There are these obvious challenges when you acquire a customer, but then send them over to a partner and then you've lost contact with them and they don't know whom to talk to when they have a question and things like that. So we decided to do it all ourselves. And that that turned out to be very good for us. And it drove a lot of customer goodwill and positive reviews and things like that. You know, I, I'm going to get in, in, into that in, in just a, a bit, but just to sort of close out the, the, the loop then, I mean, do you get a sense that those fintech lenders, I mean, when you look at the economy and the state of the economy now, that, you know, those fintech lenders who survived, are, are they out of the woods now? Do, do you get a sense that that fintechs that are there are probably going to be there for good or or at least to survive, say, that they've survived the worst of the pandemic? Or are, are there other unknowns out there that you think could create a, another sort of negative feedback loop that could once again upend you know, the, the, the business of even those surviving fintechs? I think that the folks that have survived have definitely sort of gotten past the initial shock. Because one of the things about this recession was it started in a way that was very different than previous recessions. Like most previous recessions grew gradually, more or less. And here there was a sort of a very definite moment in time when the downturn started. Uh, I think that the folks that have survived have survived the initial shock. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. So first of all, it's not like COVID has gone away. The macroeconomic conditions are, are still not quite as positive as the, the equity markets would suggest. Uh, there, there is only so much stimulus that can happen. And so, and we see stimulus money drying up in our customers' bank accounts because we're connected to the bank accounts of our customers. We see that, and that's just not them. It's representative of small business activity in the US. So I do think that from a credit perspective, it's going to take several quarters before we are out of the woods. Uh, we could even start seeing an increase in delinquencies, not for Fundbox in particular, but for the market more broadly uh, in the next one to two quarters. I think the, the, on, the, on the positive side, though, we've got a massive reduction in the number of players in the market while there's still demand for credit. So the demand is there, the supply has gone down. So I do think that the, the fintech players, or for that matter, anybody else that's sort of operating right now does have an opportunity to grow as the economy starts stabilizing. One thing that you just mentioned was the issue of borrower delinquencies. And that's pretty interesting since the story of Fundbox over the last several months has been pretty impressive, especially given the degree to which uh, thus far you've been able to really escape the worst of the economic fallout of the pandemic. And that's something that's caught the eye of a number of people and certainly caught my eye. Maybe you can talk about what's been the key to making this possible beyond just customer experience. I've read about some of the interesting operational things you've done when it comes to AI and data, and maybe you could talk them through a little more explicitly. I think the the best thing that you can do in a recession is have a strong business and portfolio going into the recession. And so while we did a lot of work over the last six months, 
I think that it's actually the work that we've done over the last seven years that's perhaps more important and more relevant. I think the single biggest thing is that we spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, and frankly, a lot of money in building out our ability to make good predictions. At the end of the day, that's what was the most significant driver in our in our ability to handle the, pan- the pandemic. And what I mean by that is building not only the the systems, the machine learning systems and so on, but also training those systems with the data that that was needed to have them make good predictions. People talk about data all the time and, and throw out the term fairly loosely. The way I describe it is you can think of data as, you can call it dependent and independent variables. So you can think of it as a, as a table where you have columns and rows, where each row is a customer and their performance have they paid you back or not? Uh, and each and there are many columns which could be different characteristics about that that business, all the way from their cash flow volatility to their revenue concentration and so on and so forth. Now, in the world of credit, it's getting easier to add more and more columns to your table because you can get a lot of data from from businesses about uh, about the, their financial transactions through things like their bank accounts, through things like their accounting software, and so on. And so we've invested a lot of time in in plugging into all of these. But by the way, it's not like this is something that's unique to Fundbox. Anybody out there can can use a Plaid or a Yodly service to access bank account data. Yeah, let me pick up on that. I mean, we've had uh, data aggregators on the show before, and we've had. Uh, Plaid, walk us through how it's able to access data for creating new functionalities and services. But with that kind of commercial service available to theoretically anyone who can pay, what is it about what you're doing uh, to kind of distinguish yourself in terms of the outcomes you've been able to secure? I mean, what's what's different about the construction of your data tools or, or is, is there something else that you're leveraging? Yeah. No, I think there are two or three things going on here. So one is that everybody can see bank transactions, but can you make sense of them? So there's this thing called feature engineering, which means trying to actually create useful variables from the data that you see. So let me give you an example, oversimplified one, but that might help. Every incoming bank transaction is not revenue. You could be transferring money from another bank account to your account that you're looking at. It could be a tax return. It could even be stimulus money. So for example, if someone's looking at average bank balances and simply using that as a variable in their in their predictions, but not looking at the incoming transactions and trying to identify which ones of them are actually revenue transactions, you could be making big mistakes. You could be making the assumption that a business is back to normal because there's stimulus money coming in when actually it's not because that's not a revenue transaction. So really, you, really understanding the transactions in and out is important. Now, it's maybe easy for you and me to do it manually, you know, spending a few minutes on each transaction but to train a machine to be able to understand these is, is important. And it takes time. And we've done a lot of that. So even when it comes to working with just with, with commodity data sets, if you will, extracting the intelligence out of them is, is really, really important. So that's one. The second thing I would say is we also use data around how businesses transact with each other. So we serve both B2B and B2C businesses, but a lot of our customers are B2B. So everyone knows that there are say 30 million small businesses in the US. What most folks don't realize is that 
about 20 million of those are actually B2B businesses. Now, you or I as consumers often don't see them because we walk down Main Street and we see the restaurant or the grocery store like B2C businesses. But behind every restaurant is a cleaning service, a laundry service, someone delivering food or or providing, supplying food for the restaurant. So there's actually a very large number of B2B services. The challenge there is you need to, to understand the, the health of a B2B business. You need to understand their relationships with their customers and their vendors. And so what we've been doing is over time, we've been building out this graph of businesses and how they interact with each other. So as someone comes to us and connect their accounting software, on an average, each customer coming in might tell us a little bit about the 100 or 200 businesses around them because they have these customers, they have these suppliers. And so we build out this this graph of information about businesses. And that helps us understand things like understanding if a transaction is a revenue transaction or not. I think that the, the last one I would say is, and this goes back to the rows and columns you were talking about. Yes, you can add all the columns, but ultimately you need to add rows. What I mean by that is the more customers you have and the more observations you make, both good and bad, the better you can train your models. The challenge is the bad observations are expensive because it typically means defaults. And so unlike other businesses where, you know, in a prior life, I ran the advertising product at Facebook. And it's very easy for me to run an experiment where I could, within, you know, within 24 hours, train a model on something because when, it, when you're showing people ad, ads, the cost of showing them the wrong ad is not that high. Someone just doesn't click on the ad, right? Whereas in, in a credit operation or in general in financial services, the, the cost of the wrong, a wrong transaction could mean a fraudulent payment or it could mean like a defaulted loan. So there is real dollar investment made in getting those observations. Um, and that's almost, there's almost no way around that. You have to learn the hard way. Uh, but what it does do is it just builds up your machinery to be able to make better and better predictions. And that's sort of what we saw happen with us. And I'll, I'll mention it's, it's a little bit hard to tell how well you're doing in a relatively benign environment because it's like the rising tide and you know, defaults are low and so on. Those predictions get tested when when there are these wilder swings in in those parameters. You know, you're, you've just made a case for big data and also big data analytics, and that in and of itself sort of returns us to this original question of sort of the, the banks versus fintech question, right? And 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 you know, what's the the future of of credit? You know, is it one where Banks rely on the fund boxes of the world to be the sort of hyper innovative companies from a technology standpoint. And there's just going to be a segment of the fintech market that continues to innovate and then still sort of combines with or partners up with the bank for either regulatory purposes or strategic purposes or, or, or whatever, you know, um, or is, is the world heading to a point where only certain kinds of solutions can be generated that really require a, a, a degree of intense focus, but, but, but ultimately those firms sort of build out very um, either organically or, or, or otherwise, you know, a full slate of services based on their technology as opposed to based on, say, legacy um, operations uh, and, and relationships? So I think, Chris, I can break your question down into two parts. I think one is, where do c- customer needs and technology take us? And the second question is, how will that play out 
with the current players, the incumbents and and the others. In terms of customer needs and technology, here's here's what we feel fairly confident about, which is that there's a real opportunity to reinvent or rethink many of the financial services around payments, around credit, um, and so on that people have today. And today, people often go to their banks for you know for for all of these, but they're not always well served and. You know, the case has been made again and again in the world of credit. For example, 87% of small businesses get rejected for, for business loans and, and so on and so forth. So there's definitely an opportunity to rethink all of these services, but in a way that actually creates a very good customer experience. Now, people think of customers as wanting instant gratification in today's world, which is true. But at the same time, I'll also say, and our own personal experience suggests that Customers are also looking for long-term relationships. So we get a lot of you know, feedback and input from our customers who are pretty engaged with us. And they often say, what are the other things that you're doing? Like, tell me more about what you want to do. Because if someone has a good experience with us, they may want to do more with, with Fundbox or with somebody else for that matter. So I think there's an opportunity there. Um, and this is where technology that actually works can, can play a very big role. I think the... So I do think that there's going to be a rebuilding of, call it the financial services stack, if you will, over time. Um, and it's going to build, it's going to lead to a lot better products, better experience, uh, where the products actually are more data informed. Uh, your bank account is not just a, uh, you know, a dumb bucket of things into which money comes in, in and goes out, but actually an intelligent account that understands the meaning of each transaction. I think the, the question is, Who's going to build it? Is it the is it the the larger, you know, sort of incumbent banks? Is it the fintech players? Is it both? And I think that's that's one where there's definitely going to be consolidation. There's no doubt about it. We're seeing that already. I think we're uh, we're going to even potentially likely see consolidation on the on the bank side. But I think that the that there's enough opportunity for at least a few players to be able to build out more complete offerings for specific segments. So you know, you're seeing that on the consumer side where there are a number of folks that are making an attempt to build out full-fledged banking services digitally. You're seeing that a little bit on the business side, although I think we are much earlier in that process, but the opportunity is very, very large. So I think a lot depends on you know, what kind of partnerships can be struck between banks and fintech players and, and how quickly banks move. Uh, but I think just based on our own experience and, and how, you know, we've been uh, we've been approached by different kind of banks, I think there's a very strong interest in sort of the banks who are thinking more strategically around how do we either build or license or just outright buy technology that can help us serve customers better. So on, on that final note, I mean, when you look forward, I mean, for those companies that have survived and sort of feel very confident about you know their investment in data analytics. You know what? What are the kinds of natural next steps? You know, right now the the, the questions that tend to be focused in the fintech industry um, are questions that that look at their business model, um, business model, and and also obviously certain kinds of regulatory questions about the relationship that they may have between banks um, and the provision of, of credit, but, but no one's really thinking very much about what, what happens next for those, uh, survivors and for those firms 
who have done relatively well. Um, uh, what's what's the possible sort of spectrum of of I guess things that could be coming down the pike in in the medium term um, uh, for folks in, in in your sort of position and in this particular space in the industry? I think there are I think there are two there are two strategies. One is if you're if you're someone who's who's demonstrated that their technology actually works, is to start figuring out ways in which you can license that technology to other financial institutions. And we're seeing some of that in the market. And the other one is to say, well, let's also build the products and let, let's build more products on top of that technology. And those are both attractive paths. Uh, and I think that you will find successes uh, along both those dimensions. I think that... Uh, and we we sort of we discuss and debate that question ourselves every day, right? I think the the one big difference between the two is, do you want to serve your end customers directly or not? Do you see yourself more as a technology play or like a full product play? Do you want to build a brand that's meaningful for your end customers? and And so for Funbox, what I would say is kind of where we tend to fall on this is, we're very proud of our technology and we're very proud of the investment in data that's helped us and so on. But we're also very proud of our customer relationships. So we intend to continue serving our customers and other customers like them and use the technology to grow that relationship, to provide more services for them and, and sort of build the Funbox brand and our promise to our customers. That doesn't mean that we will that that's a hard no for using our technology in you know in other markets or in other parts of the world and so on and so forth working with large partners but there's definitely an element of what we've done around our customer experience which is important and and so we want to build on that now another player might say well that's not so important for us it's the technology so let's go and figure out how to strike some partnerships or some deals with some large banks but for us it's it's the customer relationship. And so we, we, we see ourselves as continuing to grow our customer base. We have a large engaged customer base. We plan to continue growing that and both in terms of number, but also in the ways that we serve them. So it's sort of getting bigger, but also deeper with them. Prashant, thank you so much for joining the show. This is a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. After our conversation, Prashant and I had an extended chat on the basics of data analytics, where a couple of additional insights were really helpful. First, if you want to create a good prediction model, you as a lender may need to experience several hundred defaults from your borrowers, whether they're million-dollar defaults or just $5 ones, and then you have to collect data from the defaults and then string them together. And this process can take months and even more than a year. Now, this ultimately underscores the fact that really high-tech AI-based lending is expensive. And creating a book of business is something that is intentional and not done by chance. Now, this, in my view, probably tells you a little something about the future of fintech lending, that beyond the many regulatory questions and concerns, are some basic operational ones that could, in the end, have an impact on the competitiveness within the market and with legacy banks. Namely, just getting new fintechs up and going means you need big pockets. 
perhaps from venture capital, perhaps from drawing off of the resources of major banks and other lenders. But this dynamic, especially in a world of volatile economic conditions, makes such ventures both more attractive and risky. And not every firm will jump headfirst into a market where there are billions yet to be made. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.